0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, help lower the divorce rate, stay single. (laughs) You know, that would be funnier if it weren't true. I'm sure you're aware of the latest divorce statistics. Last year, 44% of marriages ended in divorce. And what is really troubling is that that statistic, the rate of divorce, is hardly any different at all among professing Christians. Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians do. Why is that? I think one reason certainly is there are a lot of Christians who don't know what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. They don't know that the Bible says only in the case of desertion or adultery is somebody free to divorce and remarry. That's one reason, but I think another reason is many Christians are ignorant about what the Bible says about how to select the best, God's choice for your mate. And that's what brings us to Genesis chapter 24. Today in our continuing study of the life of Abraham, we've come to a chapter that describes how Abraham found a bride for his son, Isaac. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 24. You're going to learn today four practical principles for finding a wife. Now, I know some of you aren't in the market right now, but your situation may change, and you may be. And even if you'll never select another mate, you have children and grandchildren who need to hear what is found in this passage. Genesis chapter 24. Now it's interesting, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. It's interesting that more space is devoted to the subject of finding a mate than any other topic in the book of Genesis except the flood. There is more space devoted to finding a mate than there is about the creation of the universe in Genesis 1, about the flood about the Tower of Babel or the fall of mankind into sin? Why is it, why does God spend so much time talking about finding a mate? One reason is God is very interested in whom his children marry. Remember before God created government in Genesis nine, before he committed uh, uh, created the church in Acts chapter two, he created the family. And the foundation of a family are the father and mother, the husband and wife. Today, marriage is not held in high esteem. I was reading this week that in the 1980s, 39% of women under the age of 44 said they lived together before they got married. Today, it's 70%. Many people are opting out of getting married. They think marriage is antiquated. And so God wants us to understand what he says about marriage and whom we are to marry. But I think another reason there's so much space devoted to this topic is it provides a framework to tell us how we ought to make any decision. If we are seeking to obey God's will about a marriage, about a career, about our finances? How do we go about making wise decisions? And Genesis 24 has the answer to that. Now, today I'm going to do something different. Instead of waiting until the end of the message to give you those four principles for choosing a mate and making any wise decision, we're going to see each of those principles as we go through the story today. It begins in Genesis 24. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that Abraham owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I'm going to make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. Abraham was old, I mean, really old by this point. He had just buried his wife, Sarah. Abraham was 137 years of age. Remember, he and Sarah had given birth to Isaac when Abraham was 100. So by 137, he's lost his wife. He has this son whom he can't get to leave home. He's 37 years old and still living at home and unmarried and he said, you know what? If this covenant thing is going to work out at all, it's, I'm not the only one who has to have a child. Isaac has to have a child. He doesn't have a child. He doesn't even have a bride yet. It's time to get with it. So Abraham gives his servant, Eliezer the charge to go out and find a wife for Isaac. This was in the days before Match.com or eHarmony. You had to do it this way. So Eleazar gets ready to go, but Abraham says, now here's the one principle you have to follow. You can't choose a pagan wife. We're living in Canaan, the promised land. By the way, who lived in Canaan? Canaanites, very good. Seven years of seminary, I learned that. Canaanites (laughs) lived in Canaan. Now the problem with the Canaanites was that they were pagan. They worshiped many gods. And so Abraham says, I don't want a wife from among the Canaanites, among whom we live, go back to the home country. You will have a better chance there. You know, this is a principle you see throughout scripture about marriage. It's very simple. Believers are to only marry other believers. Later on, 400 years later in the Mosaic law, we find in Deuteronomy 7, verses three and four, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, that is, people of other faiths. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now, let me say this clearly. There is nothing in the Bible that prohibits people from different races marrying one another. The Bible says nothing about that. If you find another life partner, a life partner who is a devoted Christian, you're absolutely free to marry them. What is in view here is not race, it's faith. You're not to marry somebody of a different faith. You know, in our culture, we say, oh, all faiths are equal. No, they're not. There is one God, and there is one way to that God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And every other religion, is wrong. Every other religion is sinful. Every other religion is idolatrous. And we've got to understand that is God's point of view, not our own. Second Corinthians 6, 14. I had you read it just a few moments ago. Paul reiterates this principle. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Oh, through the years, I've had people say to me, oh, pastor, that's just too rigid. I've met somebody, I'm sure they're perfect for me. Now, they're not a Christian yet. Why can't I marry them? And my question is, why would you want to marry them? If you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith is the most important part of your life, how could you think of spending the rest of your life with somebody you couldn't share that most important part with? It makes no sense. What fellowship has light with darkness? That's exactly what Abraham was saying to Eliezer. But notice verse eight, what Abraham adds. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath. Now he wasn't saying, if you can't find a believer, go with plan B an unbeliever. He was just saying, if you can't find a woman who meets this requirement, then we'll trust God to bring it about in another way. And that leads to key number one for finding a mate or making any wise decision know God's principles. You know the most important thing to do if you're going to make a decision? Prayer is not the first thing to do. Prayer is not the most important thing to do. Prayer is important, but knowing God's principles are more important. Know what the Bible says somebody says, oh, you know, God spoke to me last night and he told me to marry so-and-so. I had a vision from God. God spoke to me and said, this is the one for you. If they're not a Christian, let me assure you that wasn't God speaking to you. It might have been the enchilada you had for dinner the night before speaking to you. It's not God speaking to you. God will never tell you to do something that violates His Word. God is not schizophrenic. He doesn't say one thing and write down another thing. Know God's principles. And by the way, that is the purpose of the church is to teach God's principles to His people so that they can obey and live the kind of life He has planned for them. Isn't that what the Great Commission is? Go into all the world and make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's evangelism, one unto Christ, but then teaching them to do what? To observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Now, can I chase a rabbit for just a moment here? This isn't really a rabbit. This is important to know. You know, people join our church and they say, oh, what is your disciple-making program? What are you doing to make disciples? Well, the simple answer to that is everything. Everything we do at First Baptist Dallas is geared toward either winning people to faith in Christ, that's evangelism, or teaching them the principles of God's word. A disciple, listen to this, is somebody who follows what Jesus says in every area of their life. That's what a disciple is. And how do we teach people to become disciples? Well, we do it by what we're doing right now. Did you know I am discipling you right now by teaching you what the Bible says about finding a mate and make wise decisions? This is discipling. Discipling isn't limited to meeting with somebody one-on-one for coffee at an ungodly hour in the morning and memorizing 100 Bible verses. Now, that, that can be a way to disciple. It can help disciple somebody. But discipling is anytime we teach people to do what Jesus commanded in his word. Our Discipleship University program, that is discipleship, women's ministry, next gen, children's ministry, student ministry, Sunday school. All of these things are teaching people principles, not just to store up here so they can be smarter sinners. It's to teach them to follow Christ in every part of their life. You cannot make the right decision if you don't know God's principles. Now, he made that commitment, Eleazar. He said, I will only find a believer. And so he sets out on the 500-mile journey from Canaan back to the home country of Mesopotamia. And he ends up, Eleazar ends up in the city of Nahor, which is close to Haran, where Abraham spent a long portion of his life. Now, Eleazar is looking for a bride. Where does he go? The first stop he makes is at the well, a spring. Why does he go there? He's looking for a woman. You know, it reminds me of the old joke about the woman who was talking to her friend. She said, my husband is driving me absolutely crazy. And the friend said, well, what do you mean? Said he is obsessed with fishing. Every afternoon when he gets home from work, he runs into the bathroom, takes off his clothes, puts on his fishing waders, jumps in the bathtub and starts fishing out of the commode. And the neighbor said, well that's horrible. Have you taken him to the psychiatrist yet? She said, I don't have time. I'm too busy cleaning fish. Well, you know, there's a principle in that old story, and that is if you're going to fish, go to where the fish are. Go to where they're biting. And it's the same thing with Eleazar. He was fishing for a young girl who could be a bride for Isaac. So where would he go to find a woman? Well, he decided to go where all the hot chicks in Nahor went. Literally, all the very hot, warm people who were thirsty and wanted water, the women would go to the well, not only to satisfy their own thirst, but they had the job of hauling water back home. You see, in those days, in Abraham's days, it was the women who did all of the manual labor. Oh, for the good old days, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Well, that was the culture back then. So if you wanted to find a single woman, you would go to the well at Nahar, and that's exactly what he did. So he went there, but guess what? There wasn't just one woman hanging around the well. There were multiple women there. He had options. And that's the thing about determining God's will, whether it's for a marriage partner, or for some other decision. Most of the time, we just don't have one decision or one choice, we have multiple choices. And that's when we've got to know what God's will is. You know, there's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 39. It's talking about widows, those who lose their mates and want to remarry. And Paul said, that's absolutely fine. He said in verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. In other words, as long as they're a believer, you can marry whomever you want to. You've got multiple options, but the point is you want to know God's best, the best choice, and that leads to principle number two. If you're trying to make a wise decision, engage in prayer. Look at verse 12. And Eleazar said, "'O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, "'please bring me success today "'and show loving kindness to my master Abraham.'" Did you know that outside of Abraham's conversation with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, which was more of a conversation, this is the first recorded prayer in the Bible. Came from a servant who wanted wisdom and success and what he was about to do. Now, you have to ask the question, where did Eleazar learn how to pray? Well, he watched Abraham. He saw that Abraham walked with God. Don't ever underestimate the impact you have on other people, on your employees, or your boss, or your coworkers, or your children, by the things you do. Some things are better caught than taught, and that's true of prayer. They, he observed Abraham praying, he emulated that. He prayed for wisdom. You know, over and over again, the Bible promises if we will seek wisdom, God will give it to us. You know, the only person more interested in your finding God's will than you are is God. He wants you to know his will. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. Or John 14, verse 18, Jesus said, I am not going to leave you as an orphan in this world. I'm not going to leave you all alone to fend for yourself. If you ask for wisdom, I'll give it to you. So he engaged in prayer, but I want you to notice something he did beside praying, and that is he exercised practicality. He exercised practicality. Now, let me show you what I mean in verse 14. Look at this prayer. He said to God, "'Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, "'Please let down your jar so that I may drink, "'and the one who answers, "'Drink, and I'll water your camels also. "'May she be the one whom you have appointed "'for your servant Isaac.'" And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. In other words, God, here's what I want. Here's the sign I'm asking for. It. The first girl who says, I'm going to give you water to drink, Eleazar," And not only that, I'll water your camels. She's the one. Now, it sounds like Eleazar was asking for a sign, doesn't it? That sounds like a sign to me. There are times I've confessed to you, I've asked for signs in the past. I knew it wasn't the best way to determine God's will, but I was desperate. I want you to write down three truths about signs that the Bible teaches us. First of all, God does not respect those who seek signs. In Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Signs in the Bible are not an evidence of faith. They are evidence of a lack of faith. Every time somebody asks for a sign in the Bible, it's never a sign of faith, it's a sign of a lack of faith. Secondly, signs are a very poor way to determine God's will. Asking for a sign is one of the worst ways to try to find God's will. Here's why. The person requesting the sign is the one who gets to determine what the sign is. And we all have a tendency to construct a sign that's in keeping with what we really want to do. For example, if I say, you know, I wonder if I ought to sell my house or not. And you really deep down don't want to sell your house. You could say, no, Lord, if a tornado strikes at 11 a.m. tomorrow, I will sell my house. Now, the chances of that are slim to none that that's going to happen because you really don't want to sell your house. So you do something that is highly improbable. If you were honest in seeking a sign, you would say, okay, I'm going to flip a coin. Heads I sell, tails I keep the house. But signs are poor because we determine what the sign is. The third truth about signs is signs can actually be wisdom in disguise. For example, if you were thinking about selling your car, you look up the value of your car and you see the blue book value is $10,500, $10,500, and you say, okay, the first person who offers me $11,000 or more I'm gonna to sell to. That's not an impractical sign. That's really wisdom in disguise. It's based on facts. By the way, asking for signs can be disobedience in disguise as well. I remember one time talking to a Christian man. He had determined that he was going to divorce his wife had no biblical grounds for doing it, but determined it was, quote, God's will for him to do that. And I asked him, what makes you think it's God's will for you to divorce? He said, well, the other day I was driving around and I was asking God for a sign and I approached this intersection and the light was green. And I said, Lord, if you want me to go through with this divorce, keep the light green. But if you want me to stop divorce proceedings, turn it red and pastor, it stayed green. So it must be God's will. That's an absolutely true story. Have you ever heard anything that moronic before? But that's exactly what a lot of people do. Uh, Many times signs can be disobedience in disguise. But what I want to show you in this passage is Eleazar's sign was really wisdom in disguise. When he says, whoever offers to... Give me water and my camels as well. Let her be the one. First of all, an offer to do that would be a demonstration of kindness. And it was very important for whomever was going to be Isaac's wife, the head of the new household after Abraham passed on, to be somebody who was kind. But she also had to be somebody in great physical shape to make that 500-mile journey on the back of a camel back to Canaan. To water 10 camels would take a lot of strength. You know, Dr. Henry Morris, the late Dr. Morris, in his Genesis commentary notes that a dry camel can take 20 gallons of water. If you've got 10 camels, that is 200 gallons of water this woman would have to draw and put in the cistern. That would take a very healthy woman to do that. So what I'm showing you is that really this wasn't a, um, an unrelated sign. This was wisdom in disguise. By the way, reason and practicality alone is not the reason to do something. I realize sometimes God calls us to do things that don't seem to make sense. Remember, he spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, offer your son, your only son, Isaac. That contradicted wisdom. But the point I'm making to you is this. If you are obeying God's principles, if you have prayed and you've got two choices for you, one that seems to make perfect sense and the one that makes no sense whatsoever... Choose wisdom over nonsense. Choose practicality over impracticality. There are some people out there that get the idea that, oh, God's will must be the most ludicrous, senseless, uh, foolish thing I could possibly do. I'm going to be a fool for Christ. No. If you've got something before you and you've got the choice between the practical and the impractical and you're obeying God's will, choose practicality over impracticality. Verse 21, now notice what happens. Here is the woman. She's done exactly what Eleazar prayed but verse 21 meanwhile the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the lord had made his journey successful or not isn't that just like most people like us sometimes we pray and pray and pray for something and when god gives us the answer we wonder is this really god's will or not that was eleazar is this really the answer even though she met all of the criteria Finally, Eliezer's good sense took over, verse 26. Then the man bowed low and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. So, Eleazar finds Rebecca he puts her on the camel, they hightail it 500 miles back to Canaan. She meets Isaac and they live happily ever after, right? That's not how the story quite ends. You see, Eleazar, now that he found Rebecca, had to ask permission of Rebekah's family. So he goes back to her house. Now, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of Rebekah's family. Just imagine one day you hear a knock at the door. You open the front door, there's a little short man with a thick Middle East accent, and he says, "Uh, I saw your teenage daughter out in the field, and God told me that she is to be the wife of my master's son, so I'm going to take her with me forever to a foreign country to be the wife of my master's son. Is that okay with you? Well, how would you answer? How long would it take you to slam the door shut and call 911? I mean, that's exactly what happened. Here's Eleazar, he comes to these strangers and he tells them everything that has happened. How God led him there, how God pointed out Rebekah. Now look at their response in verses 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you, take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Everybody seems convinced after hearing the story, this must be God. Everybody except Rebecca's mom, she still has a question. She says, well, couldn't our daughter stay with us for 10 more days since we'll never see her again? Eleazar says, nope. The Lord has spoken, we must go." By the way, where did Eleazar learn the principle to obey God immediately? (laughs) He learned it again by his employer, Abraham. When Abraham was told by God to circumcise himself and his servants, Abraham obeyed immediately. When God said, take your son Isaac to Mount Moriah, offer him as a sacrifice, Abraham obeyed immediately. That influenced Eleazar. But there was one last thing they had to do before they left. They had to get Rebekah's response. Verse 58, then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Remember in verse eight, Abraham had said, if she's unwilling to go, then we'll have to find another way. You know, Eleazar had done everything right. He obeyed the principles, he engaged in prayer, he engaged in practicality, but ultimately the decision was Rebecca's. Do you want to go? And she said, I will go. And that leads us to the fourth principle in finding a mate or making any decision that's according to God's will. And that is trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. I read a book years ago called, All You Can Do Is All You Can Do. It's a great title for a book, but it applies to God's will too. After you've done everything you know to do, after you've sought to find what God's word says, after you've prayed, after you've tried to be practical, you have to go ahead and make a decision. You need to go ahead and make a decision. And if you have made a mistake, that's when you trust in the sovereignty of God. In my book, Hearing the Master's Voice, I have a chapter called Trusting the Shepherd's Safety Net. Did you know God has a safety net under every step we take, under every decision we make? It's called the sovereignty of God. God watches over our steps, our missteps, and even our stumbles. I don't understand all of it, but I understand this. Once I have sought to obey God and I have to make a decision, I make the best decision I can and trust God. God does not want us to be paralyzed by a fear of failure. Daniel 11.32 says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And that's what Eleazar did. He left it up to Rebekah. Will you go? She said, I will. And so after 500 miles, she finally makes it back to Canaan. Meanwhile, we're told in verse 63 that Isaac was out in the field, working, surveying the horizon, waiting and waiting for Eleazar to return with the bride and curious to see who it would be. So notice what happens. Verse 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to Eleazar, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebecca. And she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You know, I think the order is interesting there. She became his wife, and then he loved her. Now, don't make more of this than I intend for you to. But you know, in our culture, we put so much emphasis on there's got to be that magic spark. When I meet the right one, the violins will start playing, and the fireworks will explode in the sky and that's how I will know. You know, many times it's love that comes after we make the commitment. Now, I understand there has to be a spark there. There has to be an attraction. There has to be a love. But once we make that commitment to to somebody else, Sometimes the love grows and grows and grows and grows after the commitment, not before the commitment. That's exactly what happened with Isaac and Rebekah. You know, we could end the story here and we would have learned some important principles about knowing God's will. We will have discovered an interesting chapter in the life of Abraham and the formation of that nation of Israel but it would be negligence to stop here without pointing out the obvious. This story is real. It's historical. These are real people, but they are also a type of foreshadowing of an even greater story. Abraham is a type. He's a picture of God the Father who is seeking a bride for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 says, is a type of Jesus Christ who is waiting in that far country, waiting for his bride to come home. Eleazar is a type, a picture of the Holy Spirit of God, whom God sends to woo and invite people to become the bride of the groom, Jesus Christ. And Rebecca is a type of the church of Jesus Christ individual believers who have said to God, I will, I do trust in Christ. And we await our journey back to heaven to meet the groom. That's the picture you find in this great story. And it's why Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.